talk, let's think a minute about DNA. I don't really know anything about DNA, except that it's absolutely fascinating. I know now why Jeannie leans into this microphone, because I can tell when I'm on the mic and when I'm not, based on how close I am to it, right? So I'm going to lean in, too, so that everybody can hear me. But really, before I get talking about DNA, can we, like, move forward? Because I'm going to need you to talk to me, and I want us to be close. So can we, like, if you're beyond row six, come on up. Sally Pap, come on. <laughs> we do not bite. We can be friends. It's all good. All right, so DNA. It's this cool little part of our cell structure. And I, I can't, and the numbers are too big for me to even speak out loud how many cells it takes to make up the human body. Inside of every cell, there's a nucleus, which is like this yolk of the egg. It's what it looks like on the pictures that you see on the internet. And inside of that, there's this little factory that overwhelmingly quickly types out the genetic code of DNA as it multiplies and multiplies and multiplies. There's this really amazing video online that's in real time of this massively magnified beauty of DNA, and you can watch it reproduce. It's unbelievable. Inside the nucleus of every single cell in our body, the DNA is like a twisted ladder, and it stretches 1.8 meters long in the inside of every single cell. And in your body, that DNA is replicated in your toenails, in your hair follicles, in the, in the muscles in your heart, in absolutely every part of your body, regardless of the function of that particular cell, the DNA is exactly the same inside of it. So from the DNA, the toenails know to be toenails, and the knees know to be knees, and every part of your body knows what it's supposed to do, but the DNA inside of it is all the same. And what I want to talk about today is what I'm going to call, despite the title in your book, I'm going to kind of retitle it a little bit, the DNA of biblical women's ministry. And it will involve both teaching and health, so I'm covered there. But God has given us his word, as we've heard Jeannie proclaim so beautifully, that it ought to be the center of our preaching. And it ought to be the center of our small group ministry. And what I want to take and look at today is how it ought to be the heart of our women's ministry. Because that DNA, the Word of God, has been the same and will be the same for all eternity in Christians of all time. So think with me for a minute. DNA replicates the cells in your body. And depending on what kind of cell it is in your body, it multiplies or it replaces itself periodically. Some cells live as little as three months in your body. Other parts of your cells are live, you have for the whole lifetime. Your nervous system, your brain function, they don't reproduce. If they get damaged, they don't heal. But other parts of your body, some of them, some parts of the cells live for up to 10 years. Um, they reproduce at different rates. So we think of the body of Christ, the church, as a body, don't we? That's a metaphor that God gave to us. And the DNA of the Word of God has contained and kept 
the body of Christ and the gates of hell have not prevailed against it for all of time. The people of God began at creation when God made man in his image. They fell, damage happened, but we see the promise of hope of redemption given before the curse. Did you ever think about that? In Genesis 3, God promises that the baby will come from the seed of the woman who will crush the head of Satan, and he gives the promise before he pronounces the curse. So the hope for God's people that has come through his word has been maintained from creation and will be for all eternity. And the DNA of God's word has sustained it. You and I have this tiny little moment, this breath in which we participate as part of the church. Maybe we're a four-month cell. Maybe we're a 10-year cell, right? But we don't have to worry about God keeping his church because he does that through his eternal word that will be maintained. Our job and our role while we're here is to do what he's called us to do, to play our part, knowing that he will continue to keep his church beyond anything that we can add or subtract from it, right? Sometimes bad cells die. They need to. It's time for them to go. Sometimes they just have to be cut out because they're, you know, the analogy is really beautiful when you start to think about it and you see how God cares for his church. But there's something that is unique about every member, every cell in this body, and it, that is that they are all born again to a living hope, which is the resurrection hope, right? We have lots of things that attach themselves to our bodies, and we wash them off. We call them germs, right? And as is the body of Christ. People will attach themselves to the body that are not truly born again. Their DNA has not been changed to love the word of God. But one of the marks that you've been born again to the living hope is that your love for God's word begins to grow. Now, it begins to grow like a baby begins to grow, right? You cannot feed filet mignon to that little man right there and expect him to live, right? It's not his fault. It's your fault as a mother if you're trying to feed that wonderful substance to this tiny little baby. It isn't going to work. He needs milk, pure milk, right? So, But the love for God's word must be born in us when the, when the new birth happens. Um, every one of us who are cells in God's body have been called to obedience to his word. So we must know what it is in order that we might follow the code written in our DNA that's given to us. We must reproduce. We're not going to live forever. Not one of us. So our job is to be reproducing followers of Jesus Christ in whatever way that God calls us to do that. Now a radical, dis radical difference between the metaphor, they all break down somewhere, and our lives is that there are errors that can occur in DNA. And some scientists actually believe that it's errors in the DNA transcription that cause death. And the body eventually dies as the errors are, are multiplied. But this is what we know is that the word of God, it has no errors, it contains no errors, and it will not fail. It will live and abide for all eternity. So I want to look today at, at particularly how this word of God functions in our women's ministry. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, I'm not a women's ministry director. I'm not in charge of women's ministry at my church. Um, therefore, maybe I should have gone to another session. And I'm glad you didn't because you are a woman if you're here, except for a few who sneak in and, you know, 
spy, spy on us. That's really good. Get that out of here. Um, <laughs> but you have a role. You have a role to play with other women in your church. You don't exist in isolation. You will die if you do. No cell can live on its own. It must be attached to the body. So um, we're going to look at that. Um, and, I, and what I want to argue for you is that God's glory and his dominion are displayed when women relate to one another according to his word. Okay, God's glory and his dominion are displayed when women relate to one another according to God's word. Let's think about glory for a second. We, say, we sing about it a lot, right? Almost all those songs we sang this morning have something to do with the glory of God. And we pray that the, the glory of the Lord will be on display. But I wonder how many times we actually stop and think about, well, what is that? I want it to be seen, but what does it look like? So let me just put this little thought in your head. That glory is God's righteousness visibly seen. Every act of obedience in God's people is God being glorified. When you pray or sing, Lord, let your glory shine, you're actually praying, Lord, help me to be obedient. Did you know that? Because that's the only way his glory shines. And he says that the obedience of his people brings him greater glory, greater glory than that pillar of fire that sat over the tabernacle when it was out in the wilderness. That was a shadow of the reality that God's people putting his righteousness on display, that is more glory. Do you know how glorious it is that that righteousness is put on display? Look with me really quickly at uh, Genesis, or Ephesians. Chapter 3. Oh, i got to find the verse. Yes, here it is. Um, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not just to one another that you show God's glory. It is to the realms that heavenly, the rulers and authorities in heavenly places that the manifold wisdom of God is on display. His glory is on display. Who are all these other rulers in these heavenly places? Satan and all the demons. These are the rulers in authority. This is who God's glory shines for. It is for the battle that we are in. It is for this fight. So how is it that we put the glory on display? We obey. Um, so what I want to do this morning is I want you to turn with me to 1 Peter. And we're going to look at what I'm going to call a small piece of the DNA of women, biblical women's ministry. And I'm going to give you a little exposition of the passage and spend about the next 10 or 15 minutes, and I'm just going to go through the passage as if I was preaching to you. No, I'm going to preach to you. That's what I'm going to do. And then we're going to get to the end. And you remember what Jeannie talked about, how we can't, it doesn't, there's got to be a so what moment. So I'm only going to preach for a few minutes, 
And then we're going to get to a so what moment a lot earlier than you would normally in a regular talk. I hope Colette's laughing at me. She knows that that's probably going to be a little less likely than I think it is. I want it to be. Um, but then we're going to talk about how does this matter in our relationships with the women in our church. Okay, so you're going to do the application part. I'm just going to give you the exposition. So I'm going to talk, then it's your turn to talk. So you better pay attention because I might call names if I know them. But you're all wearing name tags. So there's that. notebook that you got out with notes. Some of you I'm going to push beyond your comfort zone here because I'm going to ask you to draw. But it's outside of my comfort zone too. So write down the center of one of those pages. Hopefully you have one that you still got a little bit of space on. I want you to draw a DNA ladder. I watched a YouTube video on how to do this. So I can learn that you can do it. Do that, do that one motion. And then come back and do another one. Right next to it, make a parallel line. You got it? We can all do that, right? Not too hard. Okay, now come over on this side, and I want you to do a similar thing, only stop at that line, pick it up here, make your S curve come back around, stop here, pick it up on the other side, and come back down. Looking, you're pretty impressed at your artwork, aren't you? Didn't know you could do this double helix. So then we can take and we can make some more bars in here like this. Because it's like a twisted ladder, right? So you can illustrate and do this as fancy as you want. If you saw that four drawing of you, you would know that I was trying to replicate you. Because you've seen enough pictures that I have four drawings. But there we go. Okay. So have that on your page. Because what we're going to see in this passage that we're going to look at is that what looked like three separate commands, three one another commands in our passage, we cannot think of them as three separate commands. It's not a you pick two option. Right? We have to have all three of these commands. And they all three work together and are twisted together and must stay together. If they don't hang together, we're in big trouble. Okay? So turn with me um, to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 to 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all... Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another 
as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, I pray that in our time in your word this morning, nothing would hinder our prayers. And that through this time we spend together, you might be glorified through Jesus Christ, whose dominion will increase. And we pray that it would happen as we bow the knee in all kinds of different ways that you might call us to do so, to your will and to your word. Open our eyes that we might behold this truth and that we might act upon it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Oh, First Peter, chapter 4. Did I say it wrong? I'm sorry. I'll write it up here so you know where we're at. First Peter 4, 1 through 11. So sorry. My bad. <clears throat> so the context of First Peter is a letter that was written to, uh, if you flip back to chapter 1, which is, sounds like where you were already, um, you, you get this interesting introduction. So Peter is writing this letter to those who are elect exiles, he calls them. I love that phrase. It takes us all the way back to Exodus, right? The exiles from Israel. And here they are, the elected ones um, of the dispersion. So they're all over. They're not in one place. They're dispersed. In all these different countries, listen to this, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. They're in all these places. So he's writing a letter to them about what the church looks like. He's writing a letter about all of pe people from all these different people groups who have become one new body because of Jesus Christ, right? He affirms that they have been born again in verse uh, 3. Jesus Christ has caused them to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You want to know how the DNA never dies? Because it's resurrection power. It's resurrection power that keeps the church's DNA alive. Death could not stop it. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. This is the DNA that's at work in us. It's beautiful. He also says that through various trials that all of these people will face in all of their different places, various trials comes in down in verse 6. In this you rejoice, this resurrection hope, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved with various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Those various trials, that word various is where we get our word variegated. If you're a knitter, you know what variegated thread is. It's multicolored. It's multicolored trials. Our trials will not look the same. They won't be the same when you're little as they are when you're big. When your children are toddlers, they're very different than when your children are college students. <laughs> I have two boys in college, two girls, a high schooler and a middle school daughter. Very different trials than when I was sitting at conferences with newborn babies. They're various trials. But through these trials, we have one single glorious salvation. And that's what Peter says. 
There's one salvation. It's salvation for the past. It's been for all time. The prophets of old. In, in verse 10, the prophets, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. They knew. They knew that this salvation was coming. It is for us now, and it will be revealed in the last day, fully and complete. So this various people, various trials, have been born again to one new man through one great salvation. Pretty amazing, isn't it? That's the context that we're sitting here looking at. Now we get to verse 7 in our text. We're going to go back to chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand, it starts. When I was a little girl, I thought that that was talking about the future revelation of Jesus, and it was going to come. I'm 49 years old now, and I think it means that I'm almost done. It has a very different meaning. I, and I think it means both. I think it does mean that at any moment, Jesus could come again, and the end of history as we know it could happen. Paul knew that. Peter knew that when he wrote this letter. He knew it could be at any moment. But he also knew that his end was coming, and that he must go the way of all flesh, because though our DNA has been changed with resurrection hope, this body will still die according to the flesh. The old DNA has to pass away in order for the new DNA to live in its resurrected way. So the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Now, ladies, there's a difference between sober and somber. Can we get that right? Sober means not drunk. Really, that's what it means. It does not mean glum. If you are not drunk, you are acting in your right mind. You are acting intentionally and purposefully. You know what you're doing and why you're doing it. it it's self-controlled and sober-minded. In the Greek, there's barely any difference between those two verbs. They're there for emphasis to say how much intention we're using in our lives because the end is near. You know that. You're feeling it. The older you get, the more you feel it. The older your children get, the more you feel it. The more you know these moments are passing, you will never live this moment again. The end is near. And, and we must live these moments in a self-controlled and a sober way. And then look what it says. For the sake of your prayers. Keep that in the back of your head. For the sake of your prayers. We don't usually think about living sober-mindedly and self-controlled for the sake of our prayers, do we? Hold that thought. We're going to come back to it. In the next part of the text, in verses 8, um, 8 through 10, we get three what look like one another commands. Can you help me out and name what those three commands are? Well, what was the first one? Love each other deeply or earnestly. Um, what's the second one? Show hospitality to one another. Great. And the third one? Serve one another. Okay.
Make sense? Got it? So we have these three parts. Service, did I spell it wrong? Just can't see that. Um, love one another. The apostle actually introduced us to this back in chapter two, chapter one, when he says, "Having purified in verse twenty-two, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, not that old DNA." but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. It's beautiful, isn't it? This is how we are to love one another. And here as he's coming to summarize all that he's been saying, he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Or what was the, in your translation reading, what was the word? Deeply. (laughs) And sometimes that's how it feels, doesn't it? When that's how it's supposed to be. We're supposed to love one another deeply since love covers a multitude of sins. Such an interesting phrase that gets thrown in there, right? It's not that love makes the sin go away, is it? Or that we should never confront sin in one another. We couldn't say that because Peter has confronted some pretty big sin in this book. I mean, right in verse chap- in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, So... Put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and all envy and all slander. Okay, we'll start there. That's a good list to begin with, right? So we're not saying that we love one another and let sin abide in us. But what he's saying is that your love, when you love one another deeply and earnestly, you will still love one another when you see their sin. And you will. You will. Um before we were married, maybe we thought our husband didn't sin. And then we had day two of the honeymoon and all of our dreams went away, right? The closer you get to a person, the more deeply you actually begin to see the sin in their lives. And the more your love feels like it could be stretched to the limit. Um, But this is why love and keep loving, right? Keep loving. Keep loving it. It's there. It's very strong in the emphasis there. Um, First Corinthians helps us a lot here. It says, keep no records of wrong. Do not be easily provoked. Bear with all things. Believe all things. All this way, these are ways that we are to keep loving. This next phrase, hospitality. Show hospitality to one another. So in the original language, it's very interesting. It doesn't come across in English very well. This is not actually a new verb. It's, it's a word that is describing the kind of love or a kind of love. It modifies the first word, love, keep loving one another. The word actually is stranger love. It's philozenia, if you like big words. Um, philozenia. And zenia is a very interesting word in the, in the ancient culture. Um, it's not something that we understand at all. This word hospitality is not what you think of. But there's no word in English, there's no part of our culture in English that can explain to us what this is. So we got to go back to an old book um, in, in an ancient Greek text called The Odyssey, written by a guy named Homer, which all grade school children used to read, but they don't anymore. But it's a shame because because we don't anymore, churches have been anemic in what hospitality means. 
Because in the ancient culture, hospitality meant that you extended whatever was necessary to anyone of your same social rank and position. Okay? You, if somebody came to your house and asked you for a meal, you would assume automatically that that was a person of your same social standing. You would offer them whatever they needed before you asked them their name. To ask them their name, to verify their identity, was a break of zanir. You would give it to them. Now, for them, a poor person, to come to a rich man and ask a rich man for help, that was an absolute violation of zanir a complete cultural barrier. So this, t this phrase is very interesting because it's hospitality, which is stranger love, to one another. So what is the one another? What makes us a one another? What makes the social standing the same that we would go and ask for hospitality of one another? Jesus Christ, the same DNA. We are born of the same DNA. Remember I pointed back to chapter 1 and all those cultures that are listed there in chapter 1 where all these people are? Do you realize that there were 10 primary languages represented in those people? Not only primary languages, but tribal customs, familial patterns, all these different cultures, to say nothing of the Jew and Gentile divide that has been broken down by Jesus Christ as he has given all of these people new birth into this living hope? Ladies, if we didn't fail here on hospitality, we would not have racial issues in our church today. We would not be talking about all of these things that we're talking about, this black-white divide that lives in America. It would not exist. It ought not exist. It ought not to have existed from day one. This is what Peter is speaking to. When he says show hospitality to one another, he's saying you reached out across across the cultural barrier. Um, 1 Corinthians 14, right after this love chapter, it actually says in there, do not forbid speaking in tongues. Well, we believe in cessationism. We don't even think tongues exist anymore, right? Well, until you go to the grocery store in Dearborn and you can't even read the words on the shelves because they're all written in Aramaic. But yet in our churches, we forbid speaking in tongues, don't we? I have a really bad story to tell you that was very convicting as I did this passage. Um... A few years ago, women's ministry at Brian was approached by a church in Detroit, and their, um, the pastor asked, could their women come and participate in an event that we were having at Brian? Well, their women only speak Spanish. And at that point, it was just a one-day event. And so we did all the work of having a translator and um, inviting these women in. And then he followed that up. They loved it. And he followed it up and asked, could they come to our retreat? And ladies, I said no. Um, it was too much work. And I felt like it would take away from our women and what we were trying to do to bring a translator to the retreat and have all these women there. And I, I grumbled. I didn't show hospitality without grumbling. I did not offer stranger love to these women who were Spanish-speaking and could have been unbelievably blessed had we gone to the work of having a translator there. Um, so we talk about teaching and how it works through us. Sometimes it really does work through us. It works us over as we prepare to teach. And this was a huge conviction for me as I um, 
as I worked through this passage and realized that showing hospitality is not necessarily having somebody over for dinner. Um, serving one another. That's the next phrase that it gets to. This is so fascinating. As each of you has received a gift. Don't you love that? Let's just park there for a minute. I'm just, stop now. 36, I'm past when I'm supposed to stop. See, that didn't work. Um, but, but we've each received a gift. This is so amazing. We're born again, this new DNA. You've received a gift. One part, one percent of you is different than all the rest of us. That's how DNA works. Did you know that 99% of your DNA is exactly the same as the person sitting next to you? It's only 1% that's different that makes you look so different from the person you sit next to. And as it is in the body of Christ, we are 99% the same. Born again to a living hope, believing all of these things in this word, being sustained by this thing. But one thing, one thing about us is different, and that is the gift that we're given at the point of salvation. We're given a gift. We have to figure out what the gift is, right? Um, we don't necessarily know what it is. It's given to us in newborn form. It's not given to us fully developed and fully mature. Like our salvation comes in newborn form. So our gift comes in newborn form. It's varied. Look at that. We are to use the gift to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. We have multicolored trials. We have multicolored gifts. These multicolored gifts pair with these multicolored trials, and we serve one another in these amazing ways. There are two types of gifts. This, this passage simplifies the idea of gifts for us very well. There are steward, or we're all supposed to steward our gift, right? And just lest we forget, a steward means the guy that multiplies it on behalf of its owner, right? A steward isn't just the caretaker of it, but he's the investor of it who makes it multiply. So your responsibility with this gift that you are given is to multiply the gift, not to just hoard it for yourself. Steward it. To serve one another. Um, two types of gifts. Speaking gifts. Serving gifts. All of us are going to fall in one of those two categories. This is news to me. I've spent most of my Christian life thinking all of us ought to be teachers. My dear friend Denise is sitting over here. One day, God used her in a brilliant way to speak truth to me, just like Jenny was talking about. And, I, and she had shared some brilliant insight in a Bible study that we were in. And I said, you really should be a teacher. And she looked at me and said, right after you sin. I can't carry a tune in a bushel basket. And I knew that that wasn't going to happen. But that started a process in me of realizing that it is the responsibility of women's ministry to cultivate both the teaching gifts and the serving gifts in our women. And, and the teachers have to figure out how to do that because the servers aren't going to tell you. This is where the problem is. You have to go to these serving people and you have to draw it out of them. and You have to figure it out. How it is that they offer their gifts of service. So we're going to talk about that in a minute. What's the goal? Why do we do these things? Look. In order that in everything God may be glorified in Jesus Christ. In order that in everything. All these ways that we function together as one another so that God might be glorified. And then, guess what Paul does, or Peter does right here? He prays. Remember he started this passage about being intentional, self-controlled, and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers? What prayer? This prayer. 
To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Right? But they have to function together. We're going to fail at our serving gifts. I failed at exercise, at, at recognizing and loving serving people. Denise covered that with love. And she's still my friend. It's lovely. And she's helped me learn to better appreciate people with the serving gifts. Right? But we can't separate them. You see how this works? When our gifts come together and they're strangers, my sister, my sister's in a church that does refugee work. Lots and lots of refugee work. She sits at the hospital bed of pregnant women who don't speak English while they're delivering babies in American hospitals, and she tries to communicate from a language she doesn't know to nurses what is happening with the woman that she's sitting with as she brings this baby into American world that she knows nothing of. And then she, she, she doulas with these women and, and helps them and incorporates them into her church and goes to grocery stores with them and does amazing, exhausting work. And I just like, it, it blows my mind that she, she serves with stranger love to these women who are so very different than her. Um, let's take a few minutes. It's 41. We're supposed to have till 45. And let's apply this. Let's see how the love binds these things together. Oh, no. I have a book. Kelly? There are two books on the table in the speaker's room, the Trellis and the Vine books. Would you bring them to me? I was supposed to give them away. I'm going to give them away. But I don't have them. Um, how is it that we know one another? Because to exercise our gifts with one another, we have to know each other. This book that I'm about to give to somebody um, is a great resource. It's called Trellis and the Vine. It talks about... It uses the analogy of, you know, how we put a trellis, which is like the garden thing, right? And we want to grow the vine. And sometimes we get so distracted at building a trellis that we forget that the vine work is really what we're about. And the trellis is only to support the vine. So we want to be really careful as we even talk about how do we do this in our women's ministry that we're not just doing trellis work. We're not just going to create a program for all this because the goal is to grow vines, to grow people that are able to exercise this. This is a great resource that I want to give away to somebody. How is it that we might be hospitable to one another? This is your turn to talk. Who are the people? Let's start with who people. Let's just list people that are different than us that we need to learn to show hospitality to. Yeah. Oh, great. Age discrepancies. Yeah. What else? Economic, socioeconomic differences, right? Rich and poor, born together in one body, right? Very hard for the early church. Addressed many times. Very difficult in our situations, isn't it? Isn't it? Yes. Cultural differences in, in both racial culture differences, language culture difference, right? But even just the family you were born and raised in makes us very different from one another. What else? Educational differences, that's great. You have some people that have significant amount of higher education and other people. Um, in America, most of our people are literate, at least the adults in our women's ministry, but when I, I've gone to Haiti several times and spoken there, and half the pastor's wives that are sitting in the room that I'm speaking to are illiterate. 
So how do we exercise and show love when people are at such different places than us? Physical dis disabilities, right? Or um, just, just physical dif difficulties or differences in any way. What about children, right? Children and adults. Are children members of the body of Christ who we ought to one another and make feel welcome? Yeah. Marital status. That can feel like an alienating and isolating thing in any crowd, can't it? If you're a single woman in the crowd that most people are married in. Very good. Family size. Yep. Excellent. What about mental illness? a hot topic on the news these days. People are people like to keep that a big secret. Um, our play, our church is welcoming to another true story. We had a, a friend who um, has struggled deeply with mental illness and um, has been different psych facilities. I dare admit this. I worry when she's in these places that she'll so talk about our church and how much our church ministers to her and help with her that they'll all come. That's hard. I, I, that's a true story. I panic sometimes thinking they're going to show up. <laughs> Glad's laughing because she knows it's true. It's hard work. It's hard work, but these are people born again by the blood of Jesus purchased, and they have a resurrection hope, and we must extend stranger love to them. Must. And we must help one another, and we must cover one another's failures with love when we screw up. Because we're going to do it. What about how do we grow our gifts? And how do we help one another grow in our gifts? Remember, I'm going to build this on the principle that a gift is given to a newborn baby in the faith in a newborn way. How do you identify your gifts? How many of you would say in this room, maybe you're not brave enough, it's okay, to admit that you know or don't, let's say you know what your spiritual gift is. Yes, a few of you. That means that the rest of you are probably in a quandary as to what has God gifted me with. How do I figure it out? I'll give you a couple clues. Um, what is it that you love to do? Often God just takes something that you absolutely love, and that's his gift. That's how he wants you to love and serve the, serve the body. You have to do it with intentionality, and you have to do it with focus, right? The sober-mindedness. It's not going to just organically happen. Right? It's got to be cultivated. But if it's something that you really love to do and you can serve the body with it, then do that. I have another friend in this room, and, and she's an administrator extraordinaire. She never misses a date. She plans everything 25 months in advance. She knows when you're supposed to have small group and whether you're going to have to report or not. But she also knows every time you have a speaking engagement, every time you're getting on an airplane somewhere, oh, your schedule she knows better than you do. And she'll send you a text, and she'll remind you that she's praying for you, and you've forgotten that it is what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> and, and you're really grateful that somebody's praying for you because they just reminded you, oh, yeah, I better, better get that ready. Thank you, Darla. I've learned much from Darla. I love Darla. 
Now some of you get Darla, and I don't anymore. Um, there's another way to find our spiritual gifts, and it's a negative way. But sometimes it's the way God reveals this to us. What is it that makes you jealous? When you see women in the church doing something, are you jealous of them? Do you find yourself being jealous? Do you find yourself wanting to think ill of them because of what they're doing? Did you know that most sin is a falling short of glory? And there's a seed there often that says maybe this is something that you need to be doing. And that's why you're jealous of it. That God is actually signaling to you that this is something you ought to be doing. But you can't just jump in and say, oh, I have a teaching gift, I'm going to be a teacher. No, 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 you're born and a baby, and you have to learn to read, and you have to learn to write, and you have to practice communication, and you have to be involved in the training process of how to become a teacher. But if you look at somebody and you say, they just like attention, they just want to stand up in front of people all the time, I, you sit down and talk to me, I bet you have a teaching gift. And I, and, and I would challenge you to commit yourself to the work of preparation that it takes to be a teacher. Because it is not easy. Jeannie told you that last night. It's hard work to do this teaching work. But it is rewarding and it is rich and it is wonderful. And if there's any seed in you that is jealous of somebody else that gets to stand up and teach, then you better dig your heels in and get to work. Because that is very likely a sign that God has given you a teaching gift. Weird, isn't it? But it's true. If you're jealous of the person that gets to run the kitchen, Rini saves my life all the time because she runs the kitchen for our teacher training programs. It's amazing. I get to do a teacher training program. I never have to plan a meal, never have to think about a thing because Rini takes care of it all, and then lunch just shows up. It's amazing. If you're jealous of Rini because she gets to run the kitchen, then you better get in there and ask Rini to train you how to do the kitchen because she's not going to get to do it for a whole lot longer because the end is near. Right? I mean, it's real, isn't it, Rini? It's real. We, we laugh about these things. We don't like to talk about it, but it's real. The end is near. We must be involved in this. So commit yourself to teaching. Commit yourself to training. Uh, and I have to stop because we're done. But... Um, Here's another way. I just want to end with this. That you know, I know, I want to just check. She's laughing at me. I never want to stop. Look at verse 12. After this glorious passage of God getting glory and dominion through these answered prayers, because we're living life according to the DNA that he's given to us, the very next thing he tells us is, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice! Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted by the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. There, you know your prayers are answering, answered for glory and dominion, for God to have glory and dominion when suffering comes. So don't run from it. Don't be afraid of it. Know that the minute you commit yourself to exercising your gifts to one another, doing so to the strangers, and keeping loving one another, as this DNA just repeats itself over and over and over again, you are going to face trials. Somebody's going to be upset with you. They're going to think you ought not be doing what you're doing. They're going to they're gonna think something's wrong. This is glory. This is God's righteousness on display. Know it. Embrace it. 
sing with joy. Who wants this trellis in the vine book? Somebody. There we go. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of having your word. Thank you that your DNA is not a mystery to us. It's not some hidden genetic code in a place that we can't see and we can only imagine. But that you have written it and recorded it in a book. And you have placed us in a nation that has taught us to read. And that we can read it and we can know the pattern of obedience that you have set for us. Father, I pray that these women would leave here encouraged and excited, affirmed that you loved them so much that you called them, you raised them to a living hope, that you have you, you have called them to one salvation in which we all partake, that you have called us to love together, to love the strangers. Help us to love the strangers, oh God, to get outside of all of the things that hinder us from doing that. And then, Father, help us to serve one another through these gifts so that you might have glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.